I'm James Lawrenson, Deputy Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the first episode of the ACRI podcast for 2018. The year begins with a lot of challenges. The debate over Chinese government influence, Chinese Communist Party influence on Australian politics and further afield, such as in universities, has intensified over the last 12 months and has become increasingly polarised. One observation I've had on this influence debate is that most of the voices we hear tend to be Australian commentators, and on the Chinese side, you really only hear two, two voices, the Chinese government's Ministry of Foreign Affairs and, of course, who can miss the Global Times. But there's a lot more voices in China that we need to hear from. Um, And one of those groups is Chinese academics who specialise in the Australia-China relationship. And today, I'm very happy to be joined by one of those academics. Today in the ACRI podcast studio, I've got Diane Hu. Uh, Diane is an assistant professor of Australian studies at Beijing Foreign Studies University. Now, this must be pretty rare. I'm pretty sure there's not many of these in Chinese university. Diane actually teaches a course on the Australian economy and Australia's economic relations with China. Welcome to the ACRI podcast, Diane. Thank you for inviting me. Diane, let me start with this question. As a Chinese academic with a keen interest in Australia, indeed, you you specialise in the Australia-China bilateral relationship, what do you make of the Chinese influence debate that has unfolded in this country over the last year? I know some of your Australian studies colleagues in China have been have said some pretty strong statements. Um, for example, Chen Hong at the East China Normal University, he said that I think the Australia-China relationship is facing an unprecedented challenge. The scare and smear campaign against China and the Chinese community has been going on for almost a year and damage has already been done to China's trust and confidence in Australia. Um, You're very networked into this community in China. You're one of the main participants. What's your take on the Chinese influence debate? Uh, First, uh, about the debate and also about its impact on the bilateral relationship. I want to say that I tend to agree with some uh, scholars and some commentators in China and Australia who are saying that we are at a low, though I'm not quite sure that it's a decade low or an unprecedented low. Mm. And as you said, the current situation is very much a result of this China influence debate unfolding in Australia since at least July, last July, covering areas of political donations, Chinese students in Australia, etc. But back to this decade low of bilateral relations, I think a very good indication on cool down, at least on the Chinese side, with this toned down on the 45th anniversary celebration last December. When you look at the choice of Chinese officials and also the shrinking size of guests at the celebration, mm. and they told a lot about that. And so far, it looks like no high-level visit either way is being planned. Mm. So we have to put an eye on how it goes with other channels or other regular mechanisms for bilateral exchange of information and opinion in the future. We have to keep an eye for that. But the good thing I have to say that is that so far I have seen from what I have seen and heard, I think diplomats on both sides are still working very hard and right. are still being optimistic about this blip where go. And what I said earlier on about not quite sure this is a decade low, I mean that 
in international relations, one individual event will never plunge bilateral relations、mm. into the bottom. Every time it takes a series of events and a bit of a snowballing. Like last time when bilateral relations got really bad, I think a lot of、uh, journalists in Australia were referring to that back in two thousand eight and nine.、Mm. I think it was not just a stern who case, but rather a series of events. We're not to talk about the more obvious ones, but also like. Also, the Zheng Yao speech at Peking University, and also on the economic side, you saw that time Chinalco、uh, tried to invest in Rio Tinto twice,、right. and also this rising tension in iron ore negotiation between the two countries, against a background of a surging investment by Chinese companies in Australia's mining sector, and also again getting politicized. So what I want to say is, if we have more things coming up like this, or not handled carefully. Our bilateral relations may indeed reach a decade low. Right. Okay. So this is something we still need to be、um, quite concerned about.、Um, you mentioned the snowballing effect. Has it surprised you the、um, the breadth of issues that this has now encompassed? I mean, we started off、uh, in Australia talking about. Um, Beijing-linked political donations,、um, and of course, by the end of the year, it had moved on to the topic of Chinese students in Australia as being、uh, agents of the Chinese Communist Party, pushing the official line,、um, threatening freedom of speech on、right. campuses. That was the claim made by some commentators. Has that surprised you, the snowballing, or, or not, not so much? I have, I have to say, I'm a little bit surprised because when this whole thing, for example, the All those Chinese students in Australia being maneuvered by the by the Chinese government. This story first came out last July and August. At that time, I heard confirmation from rare sources and thought it was something that we shouldn't. It was just a, just another serious editing of a very powerful media. So I think it's not something that we should pay too much attention to. But the snowballing effect and how all those things happened during the past six months, I think, it really surprised me. I think part of the explanation lies in this. All this discussion about China's shock power,、mm, and mm. also、um, all the other suspicion、uh, in other parts of the world about China's possible political influence,、mm. and that's the bigger picture we're looking at. Right, and that's also added. The dynamism. Yeah. So against against that backdrop, people are almost looking actively now for、exactly. new areas where we might see Chinese interference,、exactly. um, whether it is there or, or not. Now there has been some debate in this country about the quality of evidence that's being presented、um, underpinning these claims of Chinese Communist Party influence、um, in Australia.、Um, Look, do you do you have any take on that?、Um, what's your impression of the of the substance that are underpinning these claims? I mean, such, such as those that suggest、um, Chinese students、uh, might be spying on other Chinese students,、uh, might be pressuring their peers to not say anything against the Beijing Party line.、Um, do, do, do you think that stacks up against reality? Right.、Uh... I'm sure. First, I'm sure that that's a question you can answer much better than me because most of the evidence surfaced out in Australia rather in China. But to tell you the truth,、uh, there doesn't appear to be to be of much substance to these claims, and most of them are against our common sense and what we know back in China.、Um, The substance to these claims we have seen so far seems to be more for hearsay or assertions without much proof.
Uh, like this report I was reading last night by Global Public Policy Institute, GPPI, and also Mercator Institute for China Studies. Uh, they had this report coming up called Authoritarian Advance, Responding to China's Growing Political Influence in Europe. And I read it and really I don't find much proof. In fact, some of the building blocks to today's discourse that we have to say are rather thin. Uh, take the Chinese students in Australia as an example. Um, the first couple of reports, like we, what we were talking about back in last July and August, like the Four Corners program, and also the piece on New York Times, they are more about personal accounts of individual experience, rather rare, and also told in a highly subjective manner. Uh, back to the GPPR report I talked about, um, the GPPR report claims that Chinese political influencing has been particularly visible across three arenas, political and economic elites, media and public opinions, and civil society and academia. Looks like the whole country has been mobilized <laughs> into one great strategy. What I want to say is I think the scheming theory is always the easy choice. You don't have to prove much, right? Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, what, what many people fail to understand is that China's huge population has great implications for decisions the government makes and also how these decisions are implemented. Really, a, a country with over 1.4 billion people can never work as a flawless machine. Mm -hmm. Now, clearly, the Chinese government is unhappy about the turn that the um, the bilateral relationship has taken, and particularly the role the Australian government is, is playing. The, the foreign ministry, as I mentioned before, ha hasn't been shy in coming out with some strong statements, nor has the Chinese embassy in Australia, which is a touch unusual. Um, usually they're a bit reluctant to come out with statements, but this time they have. Last year I also saw a, a, a survey by the Global Times, who <laughs> I probably, I criticise others for referring to it, so I probably shouldn't be referring to it myself, but they said that they viewed, Global Times um, readers viewed Australia as the most unfriendly country towards um, China last year. Well, I guess what I want to ask you is, are you detecting any shift in sentiment towards Australia on the ground in Beijing? So not from Global Times readers, right. not from the Foreign Ministry, from your colleagues, um, who I assume probably have a bit of a soft spot for Australia, given that you specialise in the Australia-China relationship. And maybe if, if you're able to, if you're comfortable with also commenting on the general Chinese public. Uh before I talk about the shifting sentiment towards Australia on the ground in Beijing, uh, I'd like to talk a little bit about Global Times <laughs> and also about their survey because I think it's important to clarify. The survey in Global Times you were talking about, really, it was a rather ad hoc survey. It's not a regular one. It was done in late December, about 25th, right after the serious events you were talking about. So that's probably why 59% of the people who responded chose Australia. And it was an online survey because at that time their memory was still fresh about mm, what mm, right. Australia did. However, if I were you, I wouldn't rely too much on their result uh, because Australia was way ahead at 59%, followed by India at 14%, and America at 11 Believe me, one wouldn't be that unpopular. <laughs> <laughs> what a relief. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, timing is definitely one reason, but another might be that Global Times had run quite some reports about Australia by the time of the survey. So I would imagine people who access Global Times at that time or as source of information, they would have a greater chance of following comments that right. they read there. 
In fact, around the same time, I'd like to talk about another survey. Global Times ran its regular poll. Global Times does have that, and they have been doing it for, for 12 years. So around the same time, they did this regular poll, and the theme is how Chinese see the world. It wasn't a short question online, but a rather complete questionnaire responded to uh, across about seven cities in China by over 1,000 people. The sampling wasn't satisfactory, but when asked about uh, the event that they paid most attention to in international affairs in 2013, uh, in 2017 rather, across a larger time span, you found that the top two were actually about Korea. Oh, right. It's about right. Saad and also about its president, how its president failed. So you don't see Australia at all in the top 20. Okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. okay. And in the same survey, respondents are most concerned about future directions of China's relations with four countries, India, Korea, DPRK, and Japan, all neighboring countries. Mm -hmm. While, of course, they still think that bilateral relations that would have the greatest impact on China would be US, 76.5%, mm -hmm. and Russia, 39.9%. But having said that, I would agree with you that at this time, things really look more difficult. Knowing that the government is clearly unhappy, but also I feel that this negative sentiment has indeed spread to the general public, like what we have said. Well, with the government responding quite quickly to developments, I found that the general public, they have picked up the sentiment very fast. And it's not that we haven't seen anything like this, but this time what starts to worry me is that the more elite level of Chinese are also forming this negative perception about Australia. Uh, quite some of my friends who are well-educated, have well-paid jobs or position in government, who travel a lot, they would come to me and ask me about this anti-China sentiment in Australia. And for me, this is a dangerous sign. Right. So, Diane, these are people who you would not describe as just blindly following the Chinese Communist Party's propaganda line. These right. are people who are quite capable of critical thinking, and they're, saying, they're asking you this question. Is, is that right? Yeah, they right. travel a lot, they know about other countries a lot, uh, they at least know one foreign language, right. and have at least a master's degree. Got it, got it, yes, okay, I can that see why that's of, more concerning. That right. kind of profile. And Diane, what exactly is the objection that your friends or your colleagues, and perhaps even the Chinese government, has? Is it, is it, for example, I've heard that the Chinese government's angry about the new foreign interference laws that the Australian government is seeking to introduce. Is that what they're angry about? Or are they more angry about the, the way they've been introduced, the, the rhetoric and the language that's been used around their introduction? What exactly is the objection that people have in China to, to the steps that the Australian government is taking? I think that mostly there are two things. One is that China has been singled out during right. the legislation process. And the second one would be the tone, as you said, the tone that it's said. And what Mr. Turnbull has said about the Australian people have stood up, that's really an unfortunate choice of mm. words, and it has really irritated quite some Chinese. Right. So if the Australian government had simply sought to introduce these new foreign interference laws and didn't single China out and, and didn't say things like it was akin to the Australian people standing up just like the Chinese people did in 1949, do you think the Chinese government would have, and your colleagues, would have reacted or, or it would have just been a development that China would have accepted and would move on with the bilateral relationship? I think it would, it would have been um, 
less severe reaction yes, to that right, right. because the tone you said is also very important mm -hmm. and the choice of words and also referencing to certain parts of a country's history yeah. can be irritating and also humiliating so yeah. that's part of that but really i mean if the tone and also the way that this whole thing has been done in domestic politics then i think it would be much easier at least for um people back in China to understand what is going on and also to, to, to take this as a part of what is going on in Australia rather than something targeting China. Yeah. It's an interesting um, diplomatic point, isn't it? The, the measures themselves are perhaps are not really the source of the problem, rather it's the, the language and the rhetoric that's been associated with their introduction. That's, that's the problem. Countries are just like people. Yeah, right, okay. <laughs> well, so the current state of the bilateral relationship is not great. So one topic uh, that then leads on to is, does Australia need to be concerned about some sort of retaliation? Um, you would be familiar with last year, the breakdown in relation, the relationship between China and Korea. Um, the fact that uh, I think there's pretty clear evidence that the Chinese government took some steps, even if they were unofficial steps, uh, in the form of economic retaliation, um, limiting tourists, Chinese tourists going to Korea and so on. Um, do we, is that something you think we need to be worried about in Australia as well? Some of, I, I hear different views on this. I've, I've read comments by Australian commentators saying, don't worry, China's going to continue buying our iron ore. Um, on the other hand, people like me have said, yeah, I think we might need to be a bit careful though, because if the Chinese public is thinking this, then they may be less inclined to study here or, or to come here as tourists. What's your sense? Do, do you think we'll see some official retaliation or do we need to worry? It's a big question, I know. If I remember correctly, uh, retaliation was discussed once in Global Times last year. Right. Okay. <laughs> it was discussed once. We can't stop reading it, even right. though. We, yeah. yeah. Uh, the good thing about it is that we haven't seen anything official, yes, as you yep. said. But I'd like to point out that the current status, it does pose risk to Australia, mm. with, of course, economic relations at the forefront. And I'm not saying that Chinese steel mills will stop buying iron ore from Australia, but remember, a demand is it's not just about a choice of sellers, mm -hmm. it's also about demand, the essential demand mm -hmm. of the country. And also economic relations are more than just trading goods. We know that trading services and also, uh, like what you said about tourism and education, also two-way investment in many ways are very, very important. For example, like was said just now about some Chinese forming this Australia being anti-China idea, if that perception is established, definitely they would reconsider first coming mm. to Australia to travel and then coming to Australia or sending their kids to Australia for further education because this is a natural response. Yes. Yeah. And, and don't forget what happened early on with some Chinese students being attacked mm. in Australia. Canberra and Melbourne mostly, and mm. then that was widely covered mm. back in China. And also the Minister of Foreign Affairs warning was assigned to. Mm -hmm. What I can feel, I just can say this is a, what I feel personally, he says, I feel this dampened interest of traveling to Australia among my friends. Okay. Because in the past, Australia would be the best desti destination for Chinese tourists at this time of the year. Mm -hmm. But this year, when I look around, I feel much fewer people around me are choosing to go to Australia. Gee, that's interesting. It might be, yeah, partly related to that. And also when you look at Australia's trading services with China, and I'm quoting DFAT numbers, 
for 2016 to 17, education-related travel and personal travel, excluding education. So, what we said about education、mm. and travel, the amounted to eight thousand nine hundred eighty-seven million dollars and three thousand eight hundred sixty-four million dollars.、Mm. Really, that's virtually all of Australia's exports of services to China. So, this is huge. Yep. And also, foreign investment is it's even more subject to political goodwill. And it's not just about Chinese companies investing in Australia, buying mines or farmland and、mm. real estate.、Mm. It's also about Australian companies investing in China. So with less political trust, really, we can't anticipate progress in bilateral talks on trade and also investment. Yes. And、yeah. without institutional support, really, I don't see economic relations going strong in the future. Yeah, sadly, I. I, I... Agree. I share that assessment.、Um, we know the Australia-China Free Trade Agreement, for example, has some、um, mechanisms in it to review the agreement after three years, and now's the time.、Um, I'm pretty pessimistic. I mean, that we're going to get much progress on this because for that sort of、uh, those sorts of agreements, you really need the governments to be willing and, and able to talk to each other, and that seems to have almost broken down.、Um, that seems to be my perception. Exactly. Yeah. Diane, let's finish on a positive note. Okay, we've talked a lot about the challenges, and we spend a lot of time being negative.、Um, look, I'd like to know what do you think policymakers on both sides can do to get this relationship back on track? Clearly, it's in neither country's interest to have a this sort of tension.、Um, what steps do you think? Would, what, what do you think the Chinese government and, and your, your colleagues? What, what would you like to see、um, the Australian government doing? To put this relationship back on the right track, and, and as you look at your own country,、um, your government,、um, what steps might China take to, to, to make it easier for Australia to meet in the middle? <laughs> I think now it's important that policymakers on both sides they act quickly and also rationally to get the relationship back on on, on track, because the two countries have so much in common, and also we have so much at stake.、Mm. Um, for the Australian side, I would say. Politicizing is a risky choice, and doing it in over-sensational remarks is even more so. Right. <laughs> so to have a consistent China policy, really understanding the country is key. That's why I think what Agri is doing, and what many respectable scholars I know in China and Australia are doing, is so important because they promote understanding.、Um, China literacy takes time. Effort and also very importantly, a heart to really want to understand、mm. the country, and that's what I see lacking in many people now. Unfortunately, what I have seen is just that many people who are writing on China, at least what I know,、um, and also this is not just in Australia but around the world, of course. It says these people have never or rarely been to China. And、um, this is really sad because you have to go to the country to understand what it is to to see the modern China and to understand it.、Mm. In fact, much of the discussion in China seems to me to be something more about nostalgia and also seeing the world in only one way. And people seem to remember too well about selected periods in China's history, right, right. rather than seeing how this country has survived and developed and trying to cope with some common problems、mm. that a lot of countries are facing.、Mm. Um, like the Chinese people have stood up that phrase, for example.、Uh, I would never venture saying something like that. On that kind of occasion,、um, what many people fail to understand is that is why the Chinese felt so bad about it, including Greek and Moorish peace. And really, it it has nothing to do with what kind of figure or how. 
people are discussing the contested views on Mao Zedong. It doesn't have anything to do with that.、Mm. It has something to do with when or why Mao said it.、Mm. Uh, I'm not going to. Raise an example in Australia. It's going to be hurtful, <laughs> but <laughs> I'm going to talk about America. Think about America's Declaration of Independence.、Mm -hmm. So the stood-up phrase is more like a proud announcement of the the end of years of humiliation、mm. and defeat. Really, it wasn't a good analogy at that time.、Mm. And there's something else that I think、uh, is important for Australia to to develop. Is that unlike America, for example. America always for America. You always see some people there, some set channels, some secret, <laughs> not explicit channels through which the two governments can talk to each other. Right. And we have seen this with Trump.、Mm -hmm. But with Australia, what we see is that the government has hasn't relied on those more senior people to establish such channels to overcome difficulties at times like this. I think it's getting more and more important for. Both governments to try to figure out some channels like that,、mm -hmm. and also for the Chinese government, the same thing. I think it needs to be reasonable, and no country in the world should be too responsive,、mm. and that's very important. But really, in the current climate, about all these rising talks about shock power and China's political influence, I think that's that's going to be harder and harder for the Chinese government to do. Right, so another challenging year ahead. Exactly. Okay, Diane Hu, thank you very, very much for joining us today.、Um, it's been great to have your thoughts, and I hope your voice、um, and some of your colleagues、um, are voices that we hear more often in Australia,、uh, because I think they'll be missing from the current debate, and it's been a big debate over the last year. So thanks for joining us today on the Acri Podcast. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to the first of what I'm sure will be many great episodes of the Acri Podcast in 2018. Our next episode will feature Tom Shug. He's the director and co-founder of online Chinese learning and education service My Education Group. He'll be joined by Acri researcher Simone Van Nivenhuizen to discuss the challenges of Chinese language learning in Australia. You can listen to all our previous episodes by subscribing to the Acri Podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Or by visiting our website, AustraliaChinaRelations.org. There, you'll also find out more about Acri's research and events. And of course, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Acri_UTS. Thanks for listening.